1: This is episode number 16 with our guest, Christopher Stafford. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Well, hello there, everybody. Thank you for joining in. Welcome to the studio. You're tuned directly into the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I think you know that. I am your host, Josh Carey. You probably know that too. I think we're about to have some fun today while we learn a thing or two. Who doesn't like that combination? My guest is one of the top producing real estate brokers in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a 25-plus year listing broker with, get this, an approximate $2 million average sales price. Not too shabby. And he's the author of two books, Massive Abundance, How to Create Passion, Purpose, and Prosperity in Your Life, and creating your unstoppable dream business. I would like a lot of those things. He's also a speaker, a motivator, a recovering CPA with Price Waterhouse Coopers. Can't wait to hear the story. And he's also a self-proclaimed slightly warped. Well, let's meet this slightly warped man. Welcome to the show. It's Chris Stafford. What's going on,
0: Chris? <laughs> Hey, thanks for having me on, Josh.
1: <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. So you start with, um, you say you are slightly warped, and I want to start with that because let's just, let's just get it out there. I get it. I can relate. For much of my life, I may or may not have called it that, but when I read that, I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm the same way. And I think when I when I was able to embrace that and really feel comfortable with that part of me, things just started to be better, easier, freer, and just life started to make a little more sense. What does it mean to you? Why do you say you're slightly warped?
0: Well, I think that, uh, Josh, I think that the biggest thing for me really is that, uh, being slightly warped is just being sort of goofy. And the word that I love the most is being irreverent. And I think that when we can uh, be self-deprecating, we can make fun of ourselves, we can make fun of situations, and we can use humor, in, whether you're goofy or uh, however, whether you're more sophisticated with your humor, no matter what it is, it makes you more relatable to people. And uh, you know, the bottom line is we're all salespeople in this universe, and we're all trying to sell something. And I think that if you really want your customers to ultimately feel uh, comfortable and confident with you, that you can really use humor and goofiness to sort of make that happen.
1: So you're able to use goofiness and not sacrifice maturity or professionalism?
0: Correct. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, there's certain things, obviously, that you you don't want to take it too far. But absolutely, I think that in business situations, and you know, let's face it, I'm selling real estate in San Francisco, albeit high-end real estate, but I'm selling real estate in San Francisco. It's not like I'm a doctor telling somebody they have cancer or anything like that. So, you know, in my line of work, yeah, it's very easy for me to use humor to make people feel comfortable and feel confident.
1: So you are obviously you have a, a, a long history of credentials and credits, $2 million average sales price. Help me paint the picture because I like falling asleep to that visualization many, many nights. What, what could you show me in that price range? What am I going to get?
0: In San Francisco? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, $2 million will get you a standard, nice house. So I would say that you're looking at um, you know, maybe a two to three bedroom house in a very nice area. It's not going to be a glamorous house. Our average selling price here in San Francisco is a little over a million dollars. So really? you're going to get a very nice house in a very nice area, but it's not going to be a super glam house.
1: Well, talk to me about the super glam. If I want in on that, let's say I have the finances, paint that picture. What are you showing me?
0: You're going to probably see a house that is about four to 5,000 square feet. Uh, probably on multiple levels with beautiful downtown views of San Francisco. Uh, I'm actually listing a house. We're in the process. My developer is building a house right now that is exactly that. You're going to see high-end finishes. It's going to be very contemporary and an oversized lot for San Francisco. It's going to be on four levels. It's going to have an au pair's quarters, uh, two kitchens. Um, and interestingly enough, it's only going to have one car parking because we're really um, – We have a hard time with space here, so. But Hmm. super glam house, something that you would see in Architectural Digest. But for that, you're going to pay, we'll probably sell that for about $5.5 million. Hmm.
1: Exciting. Sounds beautiful. And I know um, San Francisco is really one of those, uh, probably one of the most expensive places to live in the country.
0: Yes. And also, and second only to D.C. and the most intelligent, Josh. Just had to throw that in there. Um, yeah, no, we're pretty expensive here. The average selling price is a um, uh, little over a million dollars. There was just an article in the New York Times recently that said something about that um, if you make somewhere like if you're making a hundred thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand, you're barely squeaking by in San Francisco.
1: Hmm. Wow. You, you also listed your, I, I love the statement, you're a recovering CPA with Price Waterhouse Coopers. You, those, those are the people that got in on the um, Academy Award winners, right? They were shown holding the suitcase. That was you?
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't me personally, but it was the, it was the firm. Price Waterhouse Coopers did that. <laughs>
1: yeah. So um, what happened there? What went wrong?
0: Who, you know, I think people just got cocky. I think the, partner, the two partners that were doing it, they were uh, tweeting and using social media to talk about their experience in advance of actually uh, bringing, on the, when, uh, bringing on the envelope. And I think they just got careless is really what it came down to.
1: Oh Yeah, that Academy Award blunder. Uh, yeah. What about your experience? Um, where did that derail?
0: I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. You know, Josh, when I was a young whippersnapper and I first came out of college, I went into accounting because I was really good at it. It came really easy to me. Uh, and, I, and I can say that I, I can't say that I really loved it, but it came so easy to me that I thought, okay, I should be a CPA. They get paid a lot of money. Um, and they do really well. And it's glamorous. And you travel and do all this other BS. And the problem is once I started doing it, I really hated the work because I was sequestered in offices reviewing working papers, going over uh, company finances and all that kind of stuff. And I'm a more gregarious kind of out there kind of guy, if you haven't guessed. And, you know, I just absolutely hated. it. I wanted to be out talking to people. I wanted to be out meeting people and not stuck in some small dark room reviewing working papers. So it took me, you know, I'm not that quick on the uptake, Josh. So (laughs) it took me about uh, 11 years I stayed with PricewaterhouseCoopers Mm. and then they wanted to make me partner, and I said, okay, um, that means, to me, that sounds like a lifelong commitment, and I just wasn't prepared for it, and I had lunch with a really interesting guy who basically convinced me. He happened to be a real estate broker, which I was really passionate about. I loved real estate, and I had bought homes and sold homes and investment properties, and he says, why don't you just go into real estate and follow your passion, and it's the first time I had ever heard that you know, what was I probably like around 30 years old or something, early 30s. And someone said, follow your patch. And I thought, you know what, I can do this. And that's what I did. I made the switch immediately and never regretted it. I should have done it. My only regret is I should have done that switch a lot earlier in my life.
1: And now, among other things, you run the site Epic Listing Agent. What exactly is that? What do you focus on there?
0: I focus on helping other real estate brokers increase their listing inventory. Most real estate agents, you know, if any real estate agent tells you that they, they love representing buyers, <laughs> then they're probably lying. Uh, most real estate agents love re- representing sellers because you're always part of the deal and it's an a easier gig and um, it's a lot more lucrative if you have more listings. And so what I love to do is I love helping other real estate brokers increase their listing inventory by using some of the techniques I've used over the years. I've been in real estate selling real estate in San Francisco now for over 25 years, and so I've got some tricks up my sleeve uh, that are, can help other real estate brokers you know increase their listings. But really bottom line is what it comes down to, Josh, is for me, at this point in my life, um, you know and I I mentioned this in my book too, and my book, Massive Abundance is all about making yourself so strong in life, you know, fi- make strong financially, strong with your relationships, strong with your health. I mean, that you get to a point to me, it's like a big circle. I talk about this in the book that really what it comes down to the last step is giving back. And there is nothing, Josh, and this is why I, I so appreciate what you're doing. And what you're uh, doing for all your guests and what you're doing for all the people that listen to your show is you're giving back. And to me personally, you probably feel the same way. There is just nothing more gratifying than helping somebody achieve their dreams. And when I get on the phone with somebody and I'm talking to one of my coaching clients and I'm telling them how they can, you know, get more listings by using this technique, I just had one guy say to me, I can't believe I used your system and I'm, my sales have increased. I'm looking at, you know, I'm listing $11.5 million houses in Santa Barbara. You know, I can live off that crap, Josh, for, for days. I love that feeling.
1: So I know that you obviously deal with helping real estate agents up their game. But really, all of this is applicable to any person or any business owner, yes?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the most important thing that anybody can do, as I mentioned, is to make yourself strong so that you can basically give back to your community.
1: Tell give me about back. that. How do, we, um, how do we make ourselves stronger or strong in those particular areas? Where do we begin with that?
0: Well, I think that number one, the first step is just to be conscious. Be conscious of what you're doing with your life so that you, you know, you can reach the age of 40 or 50 or 60 so that you have enough money in the bank that, you know, money is not necessarily your focus, Uh, so that you're healthy enough, you know, start being more conscious about your health so that you're healthy enough, so that you can give back to people, create the relationships in your life with friends and with your family and with your spouse or partner, whatever, so that you have a great relationship so those people can support you in giving back. So I think that being conscious about how you're really living your life in all your life areas is, is really the number one step.
1: I love that it's about connecting with people. I resisted that. I mean, I, I, you know, on, on paper, I wanted that so bad, but I was living in such a state of fear for, for decades that, I just couldn't bring myself to connect with people and then wondered why I'm not connecting with people, I guess, cause I wasn't able to connect with myself, but you, you're clearly a people person and you love people and connecting. How do you connect? How do you build that rapport? Where do, where do we begin with that?
0: Well, I think that the first thing that you should do is surround yourself with people that are smarter than yourself. And I've always, uh, never had a hard time with that because you know my 80 IQ, I can easily find people that are much smarter in all areas. I think the basically is surround yourself with people that are really smart. Take an inventory. This is so key for me, is to take an inventory of the people that you have in your life. And make sure that these people are really people that you really want to have in your life that are supportive. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, having energy vampires in your life. All of us have had people, either now or in the past where you've had people that just suck the energy right out of you. I mean, they just, you know, I had one friend, I remember this uh, girl who I was a friend with, I used to know her from PricewaterhouseCoopers. And anytime I ever mentioned an idea, anytime I said something that I wanted to try to try out, you know, it was always, you can't do that, oh, that's going to be too expensive, or that's not going to work, or You know, and I finally said to myself, you know, I don't really need this woman in my life anymore. And it got to the point where she was really upsetting me because she was so negative. So I think that the number one thing is you have to realize that you, nobody can do anything in this world, you know, by themselves. You cannot be like an island. You have to have people in your life supporting you and helping you. And you just have to be, come to that realization and then take an inventory of the people that are in your life you know, like my friend that I basically fired, I just said, told her, I says, I just can't, you know, be around you anymore. And so I think it's really important that you take stock of these people that are the energy vampires in your world. And then a lot of people say, well, what happens when I'm married to them? <laughs> or they're part of my family or something like that. And I, that's probably a whole nother conversation. <laughs>
1: You're obviously a strong, confident person today. Let's see how that developed and came about. Take us back to Chris Stafford as a child. Where'd you grow up? What was that home life like?
0: Uh, I grew up in Detroit, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. And um, I had a very supportive, we were sort of low-income family. We didn't have a lot growing up. Uh, Both of my parents worked and so they weren't around a lot. But one of the things, I mean, we had a lot of hardships and, you know, I did a lot of real stupid things. But one of the things that I was blessed with is that my parents always told me that I could do whatever I wanted. And so we didn't have a lot of stuff with us, but, you know, we had a lot of really strong emotional support from my parents that said, you can do whatever it is that you want. In your life. And uh once I recovered from my alcohol and drug days, uh, I started doing drugs at a very early age when I was twelve years old. And it took me until like my second year of college to sort of clean up my act. Once I recovered from that, I you know, those values that they instilled in me really hit home. And um and that's I just sort of and in a lot of respects I'm sort of fearless. I'll try things out. Uh, And I'm very philosophical about it. And if it doesn't work, I just sort of shine it on and move on. But I would say that's probably where it comes from.
1: I was going to ask, what exactly do you mean by you did a lot of really stupid things, as you put it, and then you um, told us about the alcohol and drug days beginning at 12 years old. First, I'd love to hear what kind of drugs, and I'd love to hear if, if everything was so wonderful and you were supported by your parents, you could do anything. How did you transition into that life?
0: Transition into the, the drug life? Yes. Oh, you know what? I was such an insecure child though. You know, my, I had a lot of really support and a lot of people were telling me and my parents especially telling me that you could do anything, but I think just, I don't know, chemically or just genetically, I was just a really insecure kid. Uh, and I grew up really fast. I was really tall at a very early age and gangly. And, and so I, and I grew up in an area that all the kids were doing drugs. So we were in a very low income area, uh, outside of Detroit. And if you wanted to be accepted by these kids, and of course I was so insecure when I was in my teen years that I wanted to be accepted. You were doing, uh, in those days it was smoking marijuana and, um, Doing um, okay. I would have mescaline, which was a pill form, and THC, um, and which was in a pill form, and then drinking. I mean, we would we would just all of my friends we would just take tons of drugs, smoke pot, drink. Did I, you? you know, yeah. No, I was just gonna say my whole teenage years was sort of a uh, big blur.
1: <laughs> did you? Did you get in trouble by your family, by the law? Who knew about this?
0: my yeah i got in trouble for my family thank god i mean i must have had somebody on my shoulder watching over me because i never got busted um and it got to the point too i'm not necessarily proud of this but i got to the point too where um later in my teens i was also doing coke and dealing coke and and i was really blessed that um i never got busted hmm
1: Wow. So you then uh, somehow graduate high school, I imagine. Barely. Got, yes. yes. Like, like many of us included, uh, present company. Uh, and then you, you went off to college?
0: Went off to college. I went to a community school really close to home. So I was still sort of stuck in the thick, thickness of uh, you know, all that drugs and, and let's face it, Detroit's not that pretty. I didn't really like living there and I always wanted to move to California. And uh, one of the things that happened to me that just really, it was just a huge aha moment for me, Josh, was that my buddy and I took a three week trip to California and I was only 18 years, was 18, 19 years old. I was in my first or second year of college, at uh, community school. And it was just like, there's this huge sun that just came out and opened this door. It was just, California just blew me away, you know, from dreary, dark, dank Detroit. uh, I went to California and went to San Diego, LA and San Francisco. We rented a, I'll never forget. It was a a Ford Thunderbird that was a, a Navy blue Thunderbird with a tan interior. And we drove that from San Diego up to San Francisco. And what impressed me so much about California was that I just saw that there were just beautiful people. There were beautiful mountains. There were beautiful things happening. There was the ocean and people were just living a whole different lifestyle. And, uh, that was the turning point. I'll never forget that. I went from a community college doing, you know, really subpar work, probably making seas. I completely, and I'll I'll never forget on the flight home. I said to my, uh, to my uh, friend, I says, You know, that's it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to completely change this thing. And I did. I literally went home from that. I quit all drugs. I quit drinking. Uh, I told my parents I wanted to go to this private school that specialized in uh, accounting. And I got into that school and I graduated summa cum laude uh, three years later. And that's when I just totally cleaned up my act because in my own mind, I thought to myself, You know, there's only one way that I'm going to have a richer, fuller life. And that's if I get the hell out of Detroit, number one, and, you know, clean up my act, and that's what I did.
1: So you started seeing the light that, as you were told your whole life, you can do anything, and you you took control, took the reins, and made that happen. So now you move to California, and you graduate successfully, and what was your life and career like right out of college there?
0: Well, you know, again, I... I was in, actually, I started at PricewaterhouseCoopers for two years. I worked at two years to get my CPA license in Detroit. And I went from the Detroit office, and they transferred me. And I worked on this, but they transferred me to the San Diego office. And uh, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. I can't say I led the healthiest lifestyle, but um, I loved living in California. But it still didn't really like my job that much. But I'll never forget because... I moved on Valentine's Day, 1984, from Detroit, where the temperature was 10 degrees below zero, and I had a Toyota Corolla with a standard stick transmission, and it was so cold outside that I couldn't move the transmission, and I, went, I, I moved with another buddy of mine, and so we had to warm the car up for the transmission to go, and I'll never forget, because we literally got about an hour outside of Detroit, Josh, and the whole, uh, it was an old car, The whole exhaust system fell out of the car and just started dragging on the ground (laughs) and i thought and 10 degrees below zero right and i said screw it i said this is not going to stop us from moving i literally went under the car took the um, exhaust system and i crammed it i wedged it into the undercarriage of the car and i just said i don't care we'll move and five days later we moved to uh, san diego and it was like 75 degrees and sunny and i was in nirvana
1: what did your family back home think about this? How did the relationship maintain long distantly now as you're underway as an adult?
0: There, uh, You know, once again, my parents were very supportive. They hated the idea. They didn't want to see me leave, um, but they were super supportive. And uh, I'll never forget this because I can't believe it. I haven't thought about this in a long time. My mother went to a psychic, which she never does. And the psychic told my mother that for me that she sees something golden happening to me which my mother interpreted it to be you know the golden state california and all that and that this was going to be a positive uh cool thing and ultimately it was so i had a lot of support but you know i tried to make i made it a point that i went home a lot and called a lot and all that
1: so now you're in california you're set what are your days like you're working for how long at price waterhouse there
0: uh long hours, so we're working like 10, 12-hour days, uh, six days a week, um, and then partying a lot because everybody, you know, went out, we became really close friends, and we all used to go out to the bars and party, and those were the days, too, uh, Josh, when, uh, you know, you could, you could go out and have five Manhattans and sleep for uh, three hours and go back to work the next day, and no problem, you know, now I have one glass of wine, and I just want to take a nap. <laughs>
1: So that was your life. You were sort of living the dream on the social life, but you were aware that, my goodness, this, this career could get old pretty fast?
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I just, I really didn't like the work. The, 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 the work, I just didn't feel like I was bringing any value to anybody. And plus, I was just bored. I was bored out of my mind. And the fact that I was making a lot of money and doing really well at it didn't, I mean, that doesn't bring any satisfaction to anybody in the end. Um, that's when I knew that I had to ultimately make a change.
1: How long were you at Pricewaterhouse? 11 years. 11 years. And how many of those years, really, were you like, I got to get out?
0: <laughs> Probably all 11 years. Uh, I tried to do things that made my life interesting. I tried. I took assignments where, that allowed me to travel, which I was very fortunate. I actually um, worked in the uh, national office for PricewaterhouseCoopers in Manhattan, in New York City, and I did that for two years. So, um, and then I did a lot of traveling uh, to clients, and so that's sort of, I love travel. Travel's like my greatest passion, and I try to travel as much as possible, but that sort of made it more bearable. But, you know, ultimately you get to a point where it's like, oh my God, this work is just boring me to tears.
1: (laughs) I've read where you wrote, can we just cut through all the crap and get down to what it really takes to live your own dream and it seems like you've done that you're doing
0: that so what does it take well i think it takes that's a really good question josh um no one's ever asked me that before i think it really takes courage number one i think that i think the you know it takes courage and it takes consciousness and to come back to you know being conscious so many of you know i had something that happened in my life that really rock my world, um, that really made me sort of wake up. I think so many of us are living such an unconscious life that we get sucked into this lifestyle. You know, whether you're a you know, housewife in Omaha or a business executive in Manhattan, you really, you, you start you, this life sort of just unfolds in front of you and you just don't start thinking about, you know, do I even have a choice about how I want to live my life? And the next thing you know, you've got kids and you're, you know, you're a slave to their schedule or you're a slave to, you know, your clients or whatever. And nobody really is conscious. Nobody really takes stock and says to themselves, okay, do I have supportive friends? Like I mentioned before, am I doing what I want to do um, before I die? You know, and this is one of the things that I love about the stoic philosophy, which I follow, and that is, is you really have to be conscious. And be conscious of the fact too, and I, at the risk of sounding morbid, be conscious of the fact too that you're going to die one day. We're all going to die. And it's going to happen a lot sooner than we think because time goes so fast. Are you really living the life that you really want to live and be conscious of making changes then? You know, what kinds of even small little things can you do that can give you the confidence? And, you know, I find this is a great, uh, you can stop me. I'm rambling on, but there's a great um, Asian philosophy called Kaizen, which talks about if you really want to do something that you're really fearful about, uh, is you just, you know, it's like the road of a thousand steps, take small little baby steps, take small little steps, even if it seems really inconsequential, take little steps, because when you take little steps to make changes in your life, it really, really can give you the confidence to take more steps, bigger steps, and it's a great philosophy.
1: Yeah, and I am not going to stop you. I am hanging on to all these words. And it's so intriguing that you said um, you prefaced your statement with this might be a little morbid and you said, really, we're all going to die one day. And... I, I agree with that sentiment, and I understand the, the the concept. And it while it may be socially accepted as morbid, I mean, really, let's move past that. I actually had that very conversation with my wife less than a week ago. In context, I said, my goodness, honey, everyone we care for is going to be gone before we know it. And it's like, yeah, morbid, what, what, whatever. You must. You, you must grasp that. So I'm all for yeah. that.
0: And I think that this is a really good, it's a really good conversation to have with others and with yourself too because it really makes you sort of say to yourself, okay, what can I be doing right now? What do I want to be doing right now before I die? What do I want to try to accomplish in the next year, two years, 20 years? And am I living my best life? And to me, that sort of thought makes me gives me the confidence to start making changes because there's a lot of things I still want to do in my life. I figure maybe I've got 30 years left and I think I can do a lot impact a lot of people in the next 30 years. But you know, if you're just sitting around watching TV and moping about your life, that's not going to happen.
1: You mentioned the stoic philosophy. Uh, I, I could be a fan. I'm just not very schooled in it. What exactly is it? What's the nature of that?
0: Well, there's a couple things people think that the stoic philosophy is you know you, that you can't show your emotions you can't show your feelings that's the definition of being stoic uh, and it couldn't be anything farther from the truth it's actually just the opposite it's it's really understanding i the way my interpretation of it really is josh is is knowing that you're going to be on this earth for a finite amount of time and making the best use of it okay that's in one sense that's the definition it's still living your life, still feeling pain when somebody leaves you or breaks up with you or somebody dies. I mean, it's not saying that you can't be human because we're all human. But if you can sort of couch your whole life in the fact that you've got a finite amount of time in your life, what good can you do and how can you enjoy your life and how can you make the world a better place? It sort of just changes the whole tenor of your life by getting you up off your ass and making you do things. You
1: alluded to a a life changing situation in your personal life. Tell us about that. What happened?
0: Well, I, you know, it's, they always say that, uh, you know, all the stuff that you worry about, all the stuff that you're going to fear in your life, are the, never happens, and that's usually true because, and that's you shouldn't worry because none of that stuff is going to happen. But what is going to happen are those random phone calls that you got, and I got a random phone call on a Tuesday. Uh, like about two o'clock in the afternoon that the hospital called to say that my partner of 15 years had brain cancer. And it's these random things that happen to you that just really shake you to the core. And I have to tell you that um, I just completely changed. Well, initially what happened, I was just in shock. Uh, and we were in and out of the hospital for literally a year. Um, we're talking about, well. Yeah, it was, just, it was just an awful time. For one year, I was pretty much checked out. I drank a lot. Uh, I went back to alcohol, and that was one of the ways that I coped through it. I basically, thank God, I had a business partner at the time who really was able to keep the business going because um, I, I just zoned out. And long story short, I came out at the end of the year, and I just said, I just can't continue this way. I have to change my life and change the way I live my life. And I have to find, uh, I sort of like really went on a quest to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life and what is going to make my life meaningful. And that was really the genesis for uh, the book Massive Abundance is I wanted to figure out what are the steps that I need to do to have a more passionate life, to have a life that is more conscious, some life that's more meaningful. And, um, And a lot of us have gone through situations like that. A lot of us haven't gone through situations, but I'm telling you it very easily can happen to you and use this or use that experience if it happens to you or use the experience of other people to really bring your consciousness up about your life and what kinds of changes you can make to your life to have a more meaningful life. And that's really what it did for me.
1: I love the, the use of the word consciousness for for those who who aren't quite aware of what that means, what is the difference between living unconsciously and living consciously in this regard?
0: Oh, I can give you a, <clears throat> excuse me a number of examples, but um, you know, eating unconsciously, you know, e- eating a whole pizza, you know, eating zoning out in front of a television, you know, eating a whole pizza and you've eaten the whole thing, you know, this huge twenty inch pizza. And do you really need to eat that kind of food? And is that really going to be good for you? Being in a relationship that you don't want to be in because it's comfortable for you, even though spiritually, emotionally, financially, whatever, this relationship doesn't work for you. But it's comfortable for you, and so you're going to stay in that relationship. It's accepting, fact, accepting things in your life that have no business happening or being in your life, but it's too hard or too difficult to make any changes. and. Um, You know, we've all been there and we've all know exactly. And I still, you know, and I think it's a never ending project or task that you always have to be asking yourself, Okay, do I need to eat this much food? Am I in the best relationship? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? It's really hard because we all know that we get stuck in this daily grind. and Our lives go 80 miles an hour all day long. And so it's really hard to sit back and take stock of your life. But that's what we all have to do constantly.
1: Several years ago, you mentioned your partner was diagnosed with brain cancer. You immediately are in the caretaker role, I imagine. You slipped back into alcoholism. Were you feeling that you were then living a a double life or a secret life? How did you manage all of that?
0: I didn't. And I think that's, for that first year, I didn't manage my life. I mean, I really didn't do anything. I mean, I just was literally... It was funny because there was a bar right next to the hospital. And when I wasn't in the hospital, I was in the bar. <laughs> and, and if my friends wanted to see me, you went to the bar or you went to the hospital. I didn't manage my life. And, that's, and that was really sad and that was really unfortunate. But um, that was the way I coped. I can't say I would do that again, ever again, hopefully. But um, yeah.
1: What happened after the first year of that diagnosis?
0: Well, I think that we had a second chance, you know, once we found out that um, he had initially beat the cancer. And once we found out that, okay, we don't have to spend the, any more time in the hospital and we just had to do checkups. I really, you know, I'm not really a religious person, but I'm I'm very spiritual. And I just sort of, one day I sort of woke up and I was just so, so grateful. Uh, and he helped me be that way as well. I mean, we were just both so grateful that we are both healthy now and we have, we're able to move on. So what are you going to do at that time? And one of the things when you go through an experience like this, and hopefully God forbid, you know, any of your listeners have to go through this is it really makes you sort of take stock in your life and how you want to live your life. And and that's really my point here is that I think hopefully we don't use or need a tragic life event to just take stock in your life. And that's really what I'm asking people to do.
1: In that year, I can only imagine there were some points of touch and go. You had private moments and conversations where you had to just discuss all scenarios?
0: Yes. Well, for the first three weeks that he was in the hospital, Josh, he was unconscious. Um, I think, I think it, the doctors... I can't remember if it was induced or not, but he was in a coma because the brain cancer was so severe and so bad. Uh, he lost control. His, he was on dialysis. He couldn't, his kidneys couldn't function. He was losing control of his organs. He was actually in pretty bad shape. Uh, and the, for the first three weeks, we didn't really talk about anything. But then I remember him having the brain, his first brain surgery. And I snuck into the hospital. They didn't let me in. I snuck in at 4 a.m. in the morning right before the surgery. And... And you know he was just basically telling me that everything's gonna be fine, it's all gonna work out, and that he told me that I was giving him the strength to move on. And so we never talked about the negative consequences. We only talked about beating this and getting over it. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes
1: that makes complete sense. And I'm sure that that was a conscious, deliberate choice, right? How your thoughts affect mm-hmm. the outcome.
0: Absolutely, and I think that. I'm naturally a positive person. I have very negative people in my life. Some people that I can't get rid of in my life. I shan't name names. (laughs) (laughs) So what I try to do is limit my time with these people. But I'm very positive because, you know, the whole woe is me pity pot thing is is just so destructive, I think, and it's not very conducive to having a great life. I think that some people they live their lives based on drama. You know, they're a bunch of drama queens that just you know, I I have so many people in my life that I could name off that are just nothing is ever going to work. It's always going to rain. I actually have somebody in my life that, honest to God, I called to wish a happy New Year, and they said to me, "You know, somebody's going to die this year." And I was like, "WTF? Are you serious? You're going to?" I said, and I says, "Let's try to like get rid of that um, attitude." So you try to limit the time with these people, but you got to be positive. I mean, what's the Being positive in your life is going to bring you a lot more joy than just being so negative. And it's a choice, no? I, I think it's a choice, but I think again, Josh, and I hate to use this word so many times, but I think it's a matter of being conscious. I think it's a matter of saying to yourself, you know what? I think it's a matter of saying to yourself that if I am positive about something, that it can get me to a place of joy. And I think that there are certain things you can do in your life that bring you to that state of joy. I think people saying they want to be happy is BS because, you know, happiness is what that's such an esoteric comment, a concept, but from a place of joy, I truly believe if you lead a conscious life from a place of joy is you can accomplish anything in the world. Absolutely. anything.
1: Let me ask you a question. I'm thinking about your friend who you call and say happy new year. And she says, you know, somebody is going to die this year. Um, wow. True story. I, I believe it. If you were to ask her, don't you want to be happy? Don't you want joy in your life? Of course she's going to say, oh, absolutely. So, Chris, Mm -hmm. what prevents her?
0: Habit. I think it's habit. Um, I think it's the way that you're raised. I think that it's your environment. And people just get into habit. A lot of people I know are negative because they think that's funny um to say something really awful and they think that's going to get them a lot of laughs but i think your words are so powerful and even if you don't mean it i think that your subconscious is registering that um and, and that think, sounds
1: like a cover right
0: yeah exactly exactly could very well be it could mm. very well be mm-hmm.
1: what looking back into your your past even in those teenage years um what advice would you give to your younger self?
0: Great question. Um, I think that what I would give to myself is to be more fearless. Do not be afraid to try new and different things. I had so many opportunities when I was younger to do you know, a number of things that I was basically just too fearful. And I think that the one thing that I would tell my younger self is, You know, as long as it's, you know, ethical and moral and whatever, try new things, try different things, and don't be just stuck with a path that somebody wants you to lead, even though you didn't, you know, in your heart knew that you didn't want to follow that path.
1: What were you really fearful of? Looking deep, what were you afraid of then?
0: Failure, especially as a child, failure, uh, failing anything, disappointing my parents. Um, I was a real people pleaser and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of courage and a lot of introspection to, you know, basically say, screw everybody else. I'm going to do what's best for me. And as a child, I don't think you really have that capability to do that. And I just was such a people pleaser. I'll, I'll never forget <laughs> the crazy story is I, I was playing, I must've been about eight, nine, ten years old. I hate sports by the way. And so <laughs> probably because I'm not good at and I good at it and partly because I think they're boring but that's just me that's an aside and I was about eight nine ten years old and my father who was a semi-pro athlete great baseball player yada yada gets me on a little league baseball team and I was always on the bench he forced me to play baseball for a year I was always on the bench I was so terrible at it that I never (laughs) I never got to play and then one of the last games of the season I'll never forget this The other team was going to forfeit the game because they didn't have enough players. And so they looked at our team and they said, give them Stafford. (laughs) And so, yes, I played for the other team. And that's the only time in my life that I actually played that game and I hit a double. It's the only time I actually hit the ball. So because of me, the other team won. And they all took me out for ice cream and I was so jazzed. And after that, my father said I didn't have to play baseball anymore. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is, I, I'm cracking up. This is the greatest story I've ever heard. Give them Stafford. Like, let's get t-shirts with that. What a great
0: story. Yeah, I'll never forget that. <laughs> wow.
1: What, what mantra do you live by today?
0: Hmm. I have, one of my favorite mantras really is do not judge the success of your day on your results, but judge the success of your day on your actions. I tell my coaching clients this. I tell my friends this. People that are, you know, my family this because you know, as long as I know that I've done everything that I want to do, I have a routine in the morning that's really sanctoset with me, and I do that routine, and I make my sales calls, and I do everything that I'm supposed to do. And if I don't get a new listing, if I don't make a sale, and or you know whatever, uh, I can go to bed at night knowing that my actions were leading me in the right direction i did all the right things that i needed to do in the universe and having the results is not important because that will come so i think we get so caught up in you know the results and i'm like i didn't get a commission check today i didn't get a listing but if you do the right things you're eventually going to get to where you want to be
1: do you believe everything happens for a reason
0: Mm, that's a good question josh god you're asking me all these questions does everything happen for a reason? Yeah. I, not really, not really. I, you know, I just think we can create our own future and, you know, I guess that's more of a philosophical kind of statement of everything happens for a reason uh, because I really believe that we can create our own future.
1: You alluded to this before, but in what ways are you spiritual or religious in any way today?
0: Uh, I would say that I have a strong meditation practice, and one of the things that I try to do every single morning is meditate for 10 to 20 minutes, Uh, and I meditate based on things that are happening in my life and things that I want to see happen in my life, and I think for me personally, meditating is a really great way to sit back, take stock of what's going on in your life, what kinds of things you want to change in your life, and you know. Like yourself and everybody else in this country and the world, we're all you know, going 100 miles an hour with our current lives. And it's only when I think you can really stop and sit with yourself for a short period of time that you can, excuse me, be more conscious of your life.
1: What do you believe happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth ends?
0: I want to believe that, that we do have a spirit and that spirit lives on. And I, in some way, shape, or form, I am not kidding myself that I even would even remotely understand how, what that looks like or what that means. But I want to believe that there's a part of us that does continue on through everything. I, yeah, go ahead. I, I just want, to, but I don't subscribe to any religious philosophy with re- regard to that.
1: Through everything you've been through, do you fear that time?
0: I think it's funny that you asked me that question because I was just yesterday, for the first time in my life, thinking to myself that you know, that death is not something to be fearful of, you know, obviously when that happens for me, wouldn't that be funny though, if I just dropped dead right now and all your viewers in the future, <laughs> no, I think when that thing happens for me, um, I want to believe that I'm going to do it with dignity and grace. Uh, who knows at the time, but I was just thinking that yesterday that, you know, that this is going to happen and it's going to happen hopefully, you know, in the next, you know, in 30 years, and then I'll have a lot more time. And it's really, again, I hate to come back to that, but it's really that thought incensed me to do the right things in my life. Like I almost like run all my decisions and all my actions through that kind of filter. Is this going to get me to where I want to be now? You know, or I don't have the time to wait. Like one of my dreams is to move to a foreign city. And actually, I know what city I'm going to move to. And I really want to do that and conduct my online business from it and keep my real estate business going. and, uh, but I'm thinking to myself constantly, okay, is, is what I'm doing right now, is that going to get me there quicker? You know, I, that's one of the things I think is really important for me anyways, is to just be impatient with my goals.
1: I will leave you with this final question. Chris Stafford, how, sir, would you like to be remembered?
0: How would I like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as a goofy guy that helped a lot of people in this world.
1: Great. I love that. Give them Stafford. Again, I (laughs) love that story. There you go. My goodness, what an incredible, deep, rich, nurturing, slightly warped conversation. Thank you, Chris, for, uh, for joining us and for spending your time today. Really cool. If anybody wants to pick up this dialogue with you, reach out, see more of what you're doing. How should they best get in touch?
0: They can reach me at my website, epiclistingagent.com. And if any of your viewers go to my website, they can send me an email from the site and I'll send them any of my books that they want for free.
1: Mm. What a gift. And what a gift you are, Chris Stafford. I want to thank you again for spending your time. That goes for everybody listening. Thank you. I know how valuable it is. Let's continue to do the amazing work. Our time here is finite, make it count. You know, we have another episode right around the corner for you until that time. Go get them. Thanks for listening to the hidden entrepreneur show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest until next time.